Good evening. Thank you. Glad that you're able to join us. This is the uh, fourth class on relational theology. I was uh, asking myself a question yesterday. Is this class still relevant in these days? Obviously with the coronavirus and the restrictions and all those things that happen. Uh, is talking about something from 4,000 years ago helpful today? Something more than just something to occupy us because we're all stuck inside. <laughs> but so I'm going to uh, jump ahead. I want to give us a glimpse of where we're headed. Just a short glimpse to see why this is important. But as far as background, just to bring you up to speed again, we've been talking about that man was made for relationship and rulership. But both were lost at the fall and both are being restored. But in the background, there's this lost, sinful, selfish, evil world. And from that, God chooses a small group to reveal himself to. When we jump ahead to the new covenant, we see relationship being restored with God that is made available to everyone, not just the, uh, the nation of Israel, but every, every people. And that's just uh, totally radical, we'll see in a little bit. But we also see the kingdom of God impacting all of our lives. So the relationship aspect is that everyone can be restored into this intimate relationship with God. And the, the rulership aspect is the extension of the kingdom of God that impacts all of life. I want to just take a, a few moments and look at the new covenant in the context of the Hellenistic world. Hellenistic world was basically the world view of the Romans and the Greeks. See, we often see the new covenant in light of Judaism and the religious legalism it had become, but rarely in light of the Hellenistic world, that of the Greeks and Romans. So let me just give you a quick kind of short summary of some of the Hellenistic worldview so you can just see the contrast between that and the uh, the kingdom of God, which is where we're heading to in, uh, in our class. The Hellenistic worldview had this belief that, that nothing changed. They believed the universe was eternal. In fact, the word for the cosmos meant unchanging beauty. And so there was no changes, nothing, nothing could change. A Greek philosopher named Parmenides summed it up and he said, what is true cannot change. Which is really good if you're talking about math. Two and two equals four, it always equals four. Uh, but it's not true when you're talking about people. He then went on to say, only the true is real. Therefore, whatever changes is not true or real in the Greek worldview. So they had this unchanging order. The problem was that they believed that the ruling class was better than everyone else. That was the order of the universe. The, the things, the uh, universals as uh, Plato referred to them, meaning the, the heavens and all those things that were higher were of greater value than those things that were lower, the, the material realm. And so this kind of played out in their view of how people related. 
So the bottom line is that people were not equal. And therefore, there was no rights for the poor or slaves or the lower class. It was a very cruel world. If a slave owner decided to kill his slave, nobody actually cared. There was no appeal. There was no rights. There was no, it was, it was like he uh, dismantled a chair. He loses out on it, but there's absolutely no place. In fact, there wasn't even a legal system that related to the poor, to the, the slaves. It didn't, didn't enter their world at all. It was such a cruel place that when the Roman army came and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, Josephus, a uh, historian, says that one million Jews died in a single day as the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem. The problem is in Rome, nobody cared. I'm sure the Jews cared, but in Rome, this was, that's just what happened. Conquering armies had the right to destroy those that they overpowered. In fact, the, the very concept of virtue Plato's concept of virtue came from a Greek word meaning virility, really. It's not virtue as we think of it, but it was really much more strength, conquering, man overpowering. That's virtue. Overpowering the, the natural world, but also overpowering anyone weaker. So you see this picture of the world that was very, very unfair very cruel, very selfish. Uh, armies would, would overpower weaker people and do whatever they wanted. And there was no form of appeal. There was no such thing as a uh, international court of law. Law didn't apply to most people. And so into this world comes the radical changes of the kingdom of God. Into this world comes this idea of equality. Everyone has value. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Why? Because each one's loved by God. That was so absolutely incredible in the Hellenistic world, they couldn't grasp it. How could God, who is high, even be aware of, let alone care about the poor? Into it brought this concept of uh, leadership or, or uh, yeah, leadership not by uh, suppressing people, not by controlling and, and punishing people, but by serving. So outside their realm of thinking, they couldn't grasp it. Into this also is the idea that change is a gift. Your future can change. Rather than going to hell, you can go to heaven. And if it can change that way, maybe your place in society can also change. So into this unchanging concept comes this hope of change to people. There was another aside that came with this, and that is that the body is not the enemy. The Greeks, the Stoics, and the, the Gnostics really felt that the material stuff was bad, therefore the body was the enemy. Uh, 
but into this comes this concept that God created man and said it was good. And so we work with this. It's not the enemy, but it's something to have discipline over. And uh, it's good. So the result of that in a big, broad picture is what we call humans, human rights. Did not exist in the ancient world. The idea that slavery is wrong, suppression of women is wrong, law applies to all people, is a decidedly Christian kingdom of God concept. Universal education that people can be improved. Healthcare is all from a kingdom of God foundation. Concern for the poor. None of those existed in the ancient world. And so that's part of what that background that this kingdom of God comes into and has had in 2,000 years such an impact that has totally changed society. Professor Rick Watts gives two illustrations. He says that he was once addressing the Academy of Science in Beijing, China. The top elite PhD people and, and uh, candidates, top intellectuals, and he was comparing the Ming Dynasty, Chinese history, with a Christian worldview. And the top intellectuals were flabbergasted to realize that modern China is more Christian in worldview than Ming. How did that happen? It so impacted the whole of the, the earth that not only Christian missionaries and the influence of the British when they were there, but the actual pressure of the whole world about recognizing human rights and the value of people had an impact on changing a society. All that is from the kingdom of God impact. He said, so it has so much impacted the world that if you could transport a present day atheist into the first century, he'd be considered a Christian. Not because of his relationship with God, but because of his values of human being, of education, of human rights. Only Christians had those, those values. So he would be seen in that context as being a Christian. That's how much the whole society has changed. If we read over in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says this, another parable he put to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Kingdom of heaven is leaven that has impacted the culture. It's God's original plan being restored. Not just people coming back into relationship, but impacting the whole planet over in Acts 16 from verse 20. It says that they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Not just a religion. See, the, the Romans didn't see themselves as uh, following a religion. 
their beliefs were just what it meant to be Roman, that it was just part of society. So these customs that the Christians are bringing in were just totally contrary to, uh, to the, the way they thought. And then over in chapter 17, verse six, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. These who have turned the world upside down, it wasn't just a religion. It was actually the impact of the kingdom, this seed, this leaven, that was literally transforming the world, and it has. There's no reason for us ever to be on the defensive about Christianity. The things that we value in our culture are all because of Jesus Christ. Change this evil, selfish, sinful world into to what God originally intended. And that's taking place today. So why is this important? Because we're talking about how we get to an understanding of not only relationship, but rulership. Not only our individual relationship with God, but how we, in partner with Him, see His kingdom extended to impact every area of society. That's where we're headed. And that's why this is important in these days. We would not have health care because there was, people were not seen as, as being important. Or if we did, it would only be for the elite. The idea that everyone is accountable under the law. And there's a law for everyone. Nobody's above the law. No leader, no ruler is above the law. They can't do, make, just do whatever they want. That concept that, that helps make us all equal all came from the idea that God loved every single one of us. How could that be? Except that each one is valuable. Each one's important. Each one is one that he loves that he died for, that he gave his son for. Every single person, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, was such a radical concept in the uh, first century world that it turned the world upside down. That's why we're doing this. So we're gonna take a short break here, and I'm gonna get my other notes out, and we're gonna get back into Relational Theology, Part 4. Covenant with Moses and with Israel. Okay. Welcome back. Uh, I'm aware my wife reminded me of, that I was speaking very quickly. Okay. Too, too much excitement and too much caffeine. Back to Covenant with Moses. Actually, it's a covenant with Israel. We call it the Mosaic Covenant to differentiate it. But the initial covenants were with uh, Noah and all of uh, the animals. And then the other one was, was with Abraham to make of him a great nation. Moses was the representative, but it was actually with the whole nation. But the background is that they, uh, the descendants of Abraham ended up going to Egypt. 
And uh, we saw that, I mentioned it last week, but let me just mention it again. In Genesis chapter 15, it says uh, in verse 16, But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Basically, you're going to go down to Egypt, and in four generations of return, for the uh, iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Meaning there was a, a point where iniquity came to the, the fullness where God then was felt uh, that to bring judgment. And so they went down to Egypt, as you know, and stayed there for 400 years. And then there was deliverance from Egypt, which is the whole beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, the plagues, Passover, which is an incredible thing. Uh, as they're delivered, the Passover is obviously a story of uh, Jesus later on. But it's something that, that was to be remembered perpetually. We see that in Exodus twenty three fourteen, it's a feast that they're to remember, but it wasn't a covenant. Passover wasn't the covenant. Too often when we think of that, we think of that's the covenant, but the, the covenant was actually with the whole nation of Israel. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to read some of this, but it says uh, from verse 1, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephaim and came to wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did in the, to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore I will indeed Sorry. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came down and called to the elders of the people and laid before them all those words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses is the go-between. And God's communicating to them. And they agree. So we see in this covenant, first off, that it's more complete than the previous ones and that it actually requires a response from them. It, there's actually something they're going to do. They have to obey the words he gives them. And then... God, if you if we read through all this, we see that uh, God actually wanted to make sure that the people heard him. It wasn't he just communicated through Moses, he communicated to them. We'll pick this up a little bit later, but it's actually very clear that they heard what he said. He gave them the commandments verbally before he wrote it down. This is something of relationship with them, a kingdom of priests. And we're going to see how that comes in later. Uh, and so they, God answered him by his voice in verse 
19, and the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him by his voice. The Lord came down and then he called Moses up to him. But we see later on, we're going to see uh, how that was a whole lot fuller. So then we have the Ten Commandments. And we have a few laws and commandments, but then we see in from chapter 24, again, a reaffirmation of this very covenant. And so he called some of these guys up on the mountain and he gave them the book of the covenant, which is what he had written down. Uh, and it says these guys who, who with him, Nadab and Bihu and 70 elders, saw the God of Israel, verse 10. They were, and there was under his feet as it were a paved work of sapphire stone and they saw God verse 11 this is amazing so this isn't just Moses this is the whole nation uh, and we see in that that the confirmation again of the covenant and the feast but we see the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire that's the beginning of a revelation or part of a revelation of God's holiness and so we're going to come back to that uh, in a little bit. But over in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see something similar. It's almost a review. Uh, verse 2, And the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And God did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those who are here today, all of us who are alive, and the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. So he's, re, he's stressing again that they heard God. In chapter 7, verse 1, the whole thing, the Lord your God brings you the land which you're going in to possess. We're going to see that it's two facets to this. I'll get to that in a moment. But before I do, let me say this. Exodus is like the original story. This is the the deliverance from, from Egypt. This is going into the wilderness. This is the original covenant and God declaring it. Leviticus and Numbers are then a whole lot of the commandments, sacrifices, and feasts. This is what that means and what's required of you as you go into the land. Uh, and then Deuteronomy is like a summary again before Moses dies. And so the original was Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and then you, you get more of a, a, a summary again. Some of the high points again. We get in Deuteronomy. So, there is so much here. It's amazing. I love Deuteronomy and I love uh, where he says over and over again in chapter 4. Uh, that they heard God's voice. Deuteronomy 4.10, I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. They're going to hear God. There's something of God bringing a acknowledgement of his holiness and who he is. Uh, and the mountain burned with fire, verse 12, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the word, the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. Verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
Verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and lived? 36, out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of fire. Just in case we wouldn't get it, the Ten Commandments were not just written in stone. Contrary to the popular movie with Charlton Heston, God spoke to people. He was looking for a kingdom of priests. Everybody. It indicates something of not only uh, the commandments and, and the things that are important to take the land, but this thing of relationship we've been talking about. So I want to say this. This covenant we see has two parts. There's the relationship side and then there's the rulership side. The, the relationship side is how we interact with God. It's signified by the tabernacle, chapter 26 of Exodus, after they reaffirm that covenant, uh, sorry, chapter 25, uh, he goes right on and t- tells them about building a sanct- uh, tabernacle, a place for him, for him to dwell. It indicates God's presence among them. And so that's the sign of the relationship. The land, the promised land, is the, uh, the rulership side. It's how do we live with each other? How do we get along? How do we... Uh, be different than the, the, this evil world around us, this cruel world? How do we, we acknowledge through commands, feasts, sacrifices that we live there? It's God's beginning, not beginning, but it's God's plan of restoring both relationship and rulership. It's looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, but also the advancement of the kingdom, the restoring of God's original order to the whole planet. His, his order was not just people coming to relationship, but it was how we then live, how we treat each other. Uh, we're going to see when we get to it in the new covenant, the commandment of the new covenant is love. So God's dealing with, we're going to start first with the relationship side of it. And, uh, what we see in a big picture, if you read through this, you're going to see that relationship is one, recognizing the holiness of God. All these rules that they have to uh, recognize that God's holy. They have to have a atonement for sin before they come into the sanctuary. They have to build the, the uh, tabernacle a certain way. They can't deviate from that. They're recognizing that God is greater. God's holy, uh, it says a number of times God introduces the idea that he is holy and they're to be holy. There are people called out of the world not to be affected by the world, but they're to be different. And uh, God's rec- uh, instituting something in his people that we have to recognize his holiness. We're going to deal with that a little bit later. I don't think we're going to get to it today because of my initial intro that I got sidetracked on. Uh, But not only is it recognizing his holiness, but with that comes at acknowledging and dealing with sin. That's one of the keys of this whole thing. And then he brings to us for the first time the concept of atonement. Leviticus chapter 16 This is part of those 
sacrifices and everything. But it's talking about the Day of Atonement, which is basically how we deal with sin. And uh, starting at verse 6, it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, make atonement for himself in his house. So the first thing he does before we get into this is that he's got to deal with himself. And then verse 7, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And so we see that we have these two goats. And one is, uh, is for a sin offering. Verse 15, and he shall peel the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring his blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgression for all their sin. And he shall do for the tabernacle meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. He's basically saying that we can't come into God's presence with sin. And so there is this sacrifice for sin. Obviously we know that that leads to Jesus and we'll talk about that later on. Wonderful story, but verse 21, he says that Aaron shall lay his, both his hands on the head of the, the live goat, which is the other one, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all the transgressions concerning all their sin, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So there's two sides. There's this sacrifice for sin, but there's also this transfer of sin, and they're removing it from them. I'm making a point of that because we're going to see when we come to the atonement, Jesus, which is the fulfillment of this. This is a type, obviously. God's beginning to, to bring an understanding of what's necessary we're going to see that not only did Jesus die for our sin, but he removed it. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So God's beginning to show them not only his holiness, which we'll talk about in a little bit, not only sin and atonement, but really... Uh, that they need some help. Over in Romans chapter 3, most of you would know this, but Romans 3 and verse 20 says, uh, sorry, I'll start at 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Galatians chapter 3, and verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life truly given life truly righteousness, 
would have been by the law. But the scriptures were confined all understand that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So the commandments were given to give us a knowledge of sin. They were never given by God to justify us. That was never the intent. God didn't say, if you do all these, you will be sinful or without sin, sinless. He didn't say, if you do these, you'll be justified before me. The whole purpose was to make them aware that they were sinful. They were given to give us a a knowledge of sin. The Pharisees later on twisted it to be justification or means to righteousness. If you obey all these things, you will be righteous and God will accept you. It was never the intent. It was just to show us that we're not righteous and we need a sacrifice. That's why Jesus was so angry with the Pharisees. They had twisted the very uh, plan of God, which was never by obeying this law, these rules, these commandments, will you be righteous? One, the, the part of living in the land is good. Still applies. It's still not good to kill people. Uh, that we, we don't live together well if we kill people. We don't live together well if we steal from, from each other. All those things about living together well, we're going to get to that later. That's land, but... When it comes to understanding God's holiness and sin, we, his whole goal was to make us understand that we're not righteous. We need help. So if the goal was to give us a knowledge of sin, we need to take a look at what is sin. And that's what I want to get into for the next few minutes. What is sin? That will affect how we understand what God's doing. Ultimately, sin is rebellion against God. Genesis 3, we saw, it's, I want to do what's right in my own eyes. It's all decide right and wrong. Don't tell me what to do. Let me make the decision. Let me decide good and bad, which ultimately comes down to Rebellion. Jeremiah chapter 13. And I could give you dozens and dozens of scriptures, but verse 10 of chapter 13, he says, This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, So he's talking about a heart issue. Ultimately, it's rebellion. Ezekiel chapter 18. In verse 31, it says, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourself a new heart, a new spirit. That word transgressions, pesha, literally means rebellion. Cast away from you the rebellion that you committed. Transgression, trespass. And get a new heart. So ultimately, 
sin is rebellion against God. Now, rebellion leads to selfishness. If I'm going to decide what's right and wrong, I make myself the center of the universe, and I'll decide based on how it affects me. It's terrible that uh, people in Africa are dying because they don't have clean water. But don't take the last toilet roll from my supermarket. That affects me. That's wrong. I'll smash somebody. So ultimately, it's a heart thing, but it's also this selfishness. So God sets up these commandments to show us our heart of rebellion. There's sin, and then there's sins. Sin is the heart of rebellion. Sins are the disobedience to the specific commandments that God sets up. They were never designed, those commandments were never designed to make us righteous. They were just designed to show us that we have a rebellious heart and we need help. In Hebrew, the Hebrew language, there's 11 words translated sin, iniquity, transgression, trespass, etc. I just pointed one out to you in uh, Ezekiel, uh, where transgression means rebellion. In Greek, there are seven words. Of the 18 words, all of them carry the idea of intent. Sin is something of intent. Let me see if I can illustrate that. If there were 10 big guys who came into the room and they overpowered Tim and they took control of him and overpowered him, no matter how strong he fought against them, they were stronger. And they put a gun in his hand and they pointed at me, they moved his arm so it was pointed at me and they pressed his finger against the trigger, no matter how he fought against them, and the gun discharged and it shot me and I died, would Tim be guilty? There's not a court of law anywhere in the world that would hold him accountable because there was no intent. He was forced to do something. So the idea of sin is intent. What it isn't that I fell off the curb when I wasn't walking and not looking. It was something of intent. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of the result of sin is death. That's separation from God. Ezekiel 18, where we were just a moment ago from verse 1, says this, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Verse 18, as for his father, because he Cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. 
Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him and the wickedness of the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Over in Jeremiah, chapter 31, and verse 29, says this again, In these days I shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on us, just in case you didn't get in Ezekiel. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And then it goes into the new covenant. But just so you know where that came from, back over in Deuteronomy. Chapter 24. And verse 16 says this. Fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Why am I making a point of this? Bottom line is, every one of us is a sinner and we're accountable for our own sin. I can't blame it on my parents. I can't blame it on my ancestors. The Bible is very clear that I'm judged for my own sin. My sin separates me from God, not someone else's. Sin is not, it's not the guilt that's transferred. It's the actual sin that has an impact. It's the actual rebellion that separates me from God. Sin separates us from God. That's what death is. So what I want you to, to see in this, and we're going to deal with it more later, is that sin is not just a concept, but it has, it's almost as if it is something that has a weight that we carry with us that has to be removed. It's not just some idea that God's unhappy. It's something that actually causes us to be removed from God. Because God's holy. We're going to talk about the holiness of God a little bit later. But the point of this is that all of this was given so that we'd have a knowledge of sin. Not so that we blame someone else. It's not the circumstances that made me selfish. It's not uh, my parents that made me rebellious. The fact is, I am a sinner. And I deserve to be separated from God. Now we're going to talk about what that actually means at a later point. I think it's more of a, that actual weight is going to destroy us when God's glory is revealed. But sin is something that has intent, that I do. And so it's not something that is a mistake 
It's an intent. Are you still with me? I think we're going to leave it there for tonight. I want to get into the holiness of God. I want to get into, as I pointed out earlier, uh, the importance of hearing God's voice. Uh, why is that recorded time and time again in, uh, in this covenant that God spoke to them, that they heard his voice? Uh, how does that affect us? What's the, what's the point there? We're going to get into that, but I've gone probably long enough for this evening. Uh, but understand, this covenant, see if we see it wrong, we look back and we say this law was a mistake. A lot of people see the old covenant. It's not actually old. It's part of the progressive revelation of God, but they look back and they see it as old and they say, we want nothing to do with that. But the reality is that it is part of God's revelation. What made it wrong was when the Pharisees twisted it and said, this becomes a means of justification rather than a means of us knowing that we're sinners and we need to be saved. That's what made it wrong. And so, was it wrong? No. Did God make a mistake? No. Was it a plan that failed? No. It was never designed to be uh, justification or salvation. It was only designed to show us that we're sinners. Fortunately, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God has redeemed us in his son. That's the good story that we're getting to. That's the good news in these days of bad news. What's the good news? The good news is that we can be redeemed. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation that you bring to us. Help us to chew on these things and look at them and get a, a grasp of what you're doing and your revelation. We want to know you as you really are. Lord, I pray for everyone who hears this that there would be a, doesn't have to be a necessarily an agreement, but a willingness to examine, to think, and to look. Lord, thank you that you lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me encourage you. Read the Bible. Read this whole section. Talking from Genesis through to uh, Chronicles. Just read and uh, see the whole picture. But see it in light of what God is doing. See these uh, commandments and sacrifices and feasts and everything in light of what God's trying to teach a people in preparation for the revelation of the new covenant. And then we'll... Uh, We'll deal with, I wasn't able to get to everything I wanted to cover with this one. We'll start with that next week and then we'll move on to the next covenant. Uh, I'm excited to get to the, the more fun part, which is the new covenant and the kingdom and all that that entails. But we have to have an understanding, otherwise we get a lot of this uh, mistake. Let me encourage you in this. This will help you in the long term, help you not be... Uh, Deceived, not be led astray, not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There's a lot of stuff that people say, especially in these days, this day and age, that don't represent God's heart, that don't represent his word. No matter how often they say it does, 
if they don't if they've read the the Bible through a filter and they've missed the picture of God that it presents there because they've had some sort of uh, filter, whether it's theological or cultural, whatever, then that they often will misrepresent the heart of God. And that's what we don't want to do. We don't ever want to misrepresent God's heart. God loves people. And his redemption, this whole, the, the law and the, and the, the uh, commandments were not because he was angry, it was because he was teaching us how much we needed him. And then we understand his love for us and that he paid the penalty. Amen.